0: This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. The book is sideman In pursuit of the next gig, the author, Mark Rivera. While most successful sidemen are lucky to spend a decade in the music business, multi-instrumentalist Mark Rivera is working on his fifth... Best known as Billy Joel's saxophonist, as well as musical director for Ringo Starr and his all-star band, Rivera has shared the stage with some of rock and roll's greatest performers, including John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Elton John, Simon & Garfunkel, Foreigner, Peter Frampton, Tony Bennett, Sheila E., Joe Walsh, Hall & Oates, and Peter Gabriel. How does he do it while avoiding the typical pitfalls, falling out of favor with the band, burnout, depression? A devoted father and husband for nearly 40 years, Rivera's recollections in Sideman demonstrate that while he struggled to balance the two worlds, a rock and roller circling the globe, and a regular guy worried about putting food on the table, his body's compulsion to always be playing music kept him in constant pursuit of the next gig. The Sideman is put to the test as he recounts his past from the confines of a global pandemic, and the man accustomed to keeping up with the music is forced to put down his instruments and reflect. Full of optimism, humor, and candor, Rivera turns the spotlight on the sideman's life, revealing not only what it takes to climb the industry ladder and stay there, but something more surprising, a bit of ourselves rocking out amongst all those superstars. Happy to have Mark Rivera join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Mark, welcome.
1: Steve, thank you so much. I was going to say... I would have bought that book after that introduction. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so
0: what made you decide to write this book?
1: Um, I've been working or trying to do some gigs as a uh, a speaker, this woman, Betsy Berg, who uh, wanted to rep me. Uh, I met her, I think it was like probably December of 19 or possibly January of 20, and she said, you know, it would be great if you had a book. And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, people write a book just as they fall off stage or as that phase of their life is gone. And she said, no, it's not true. I say, well, we'll talk about that another time. And as it turns out, we returned from Mexico City on, I believe it was March 7th. And by March 17th, well, uh, by March 10th, the whole industry had shut down. And by the 17th of March, my wife, Sandra, and I both had COVID. And it, would, it looked grim, and it didn't. No one knew how long it would last. So I guess it's how I spent my COVID vacation, if that makes any sense to anyone.
0: Mm.
1: But um, it was it was put forth, and I met this gentleman, uh, Mike Ponce, and I just fell in love with his style, his 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 banter. We were very comfortable with each other, and to, frankly, I think what's most important about this as I've spoken to both my sons about it, they say, you know, Dad, it's some stuff, you reveal it. I say, you know what? It was cathartic. It's really what I felt, and it's most importantly, what people don't realize how much it takes to do what what we do. And what I do in particular, I guess, is to sacrifice. It's uh, the sacrifice of, like, you know, your time, because time is the one commodity we'll never get back. So... It started out like a, a day here, a day then. I was like, it got to the point, Steve, where I was actually looking forward to calling Mike because he was like my therapist. Hmm. And it, uh, it, it's, it's so, you know, musicians don't love to reflect, and they don't love to wait around. And I had to do both. But in doing so, it, I really gained a sense of a perspective on my, most importantly, my family and this, this crazy rock and roll world. And the admiration for both, in particular, Billy Joel and Ringo Starr. I, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but the entire time while we were down for like eighteen months, Billy paid the band, the crew, the truck drivers, the lighting people, as if nothing had happened. Wow! So, so are you, I can't, I can't begin to speak his his praise. It's uh, you know, and people say sometimes, oh, you know, he could afford it. I said yeah, a lot of people could afford it, but he did it. And yeah. uh, I I, I owe my my family uh, a great—I'm it, 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 stumbling on the words of how grateful I am for, for my position with him. It's 40—it'll 40, be—it's 41 years uh, currently, because in February of 82, I joined the band.
0: Yeah, how—first of all, has Billy read the book?
1: Yes, he did.
0: What's you been know, his said, feedback?
1: His feedback is, wow— you did a lot of drugs, uh, and I'm surprised I didn't. I did, so I'm surprised I didn't run into you at Tracks or JPs, because those are the clubs. I don't know if you're old enough to know those clubs in New York. JPs and Tracks. Uh, this gentleman, Jimmy Polis, may he rest in peace. Uh, unfortunately, you have to say that too often lately. But he had this fantastic club. Uh, tracks was the main one on 72nd Street, and you know he, what he said was, "Book is great." In fact, when I had to say things about being let go. At one point, I had to ask him, I so said, would it be all right if I mentioned at the end, of the, at some point that I was let go? And he looked up at me over his glass and he said, hey, it happened. And he's the most, uh, I mean, he's, a, he's basically, this is the guy. It happened, okay. He doesn't hide. He owns everything. And, um, I, I, again, I take my hat off to the guy. I, I wish more people could own this stuff instead of hiding behind something else.
0: So, Mark, you said 1982. Uh, you joined up with Billy Joel. How did that come about?
1: Um, well, it goes back to 1975. Uh, I was, I think, it was 75 or 77, possibly. I was in a band. I was living at the, practically living at the record plant. Uh, we were, we backed John Lennon in 75, uh, and there was a band cutting some demos. A band was originally called Cash. And we were in a bidding war. The band Bombs, which was the band, in fact, Lennon, broke up at some point. And then I was, again, doing the uh, Sideman Hustle. And um, the band Cash, which became Tycoon, I don't know if you're familiar with if you've knew that, existed. We had a about a, like a top 20 or top 25 single. And we were between Atlantic, I think RCA, and Arista. And Jack Douglas, who we loved as our producer, produced the demos with Rod O'Brien uh, and uh, Rob O'Brien. And, uh, and as it turns out, we got an uh, offer for $200,000 between Atlantic and RCA. But Clive Davis said, well, I'll give you $250,000. And we're like, oh, another $50,000. It's a no brainer. But he said, there's one one requirement that you have to use this new producer i said everyone said well who's that and he said mutt lang and we all said what the f- is uh <laughs> what the hell is a mutt lang he he wasn't the mutt lang that everyone now knows turns out mutt and i became fast friends um and he we just did everything together he sang all the backgrounds with us and the band Lasted about as long as it played, as uh, long as the record could play twice. We did a couple of gigs opening up for Heart and and uh, the River Band. But now, fast forward, I think it was three years, and I'm playing at track's that wonderful club, and sure enough, I get I walk up my sixth floor, walk up with my baritone tenor, and I get a, the phone's ringing. I pick it up. It's now about eleven thirty at night, and I say hello. He goes, Oh Marcus. It's Mutt. I'm like, hey, man, what's happening? And he said, "I'm wondering if you could pop down to Electric Lady Studios." I said, "Yeah, I could make it." When do you want me down there? He goes, "Right now." I'm like, "Oh, mutt, I'm I'm shagged. I'm, I'm I've just did two sets with two different bands." He says, "Well, I'm cutting uh, a track for Foreigner's new record." Like, boom, on uh, down the stairs in a cab, and through mutt, I was introduced to Mick Jones and Lou Graham. so I became. A side man in Foreigner, and that was in 1980, I believe. In '81, we toured '80-'81, the end of '80 80, into '81 into maybe the end of uh, or the very beginning of '82. And at that time, Foreigner gigs were, you know, weekend. We were like weekend warriors because the record was mammoth, and all we had to do is go out on a on a Friday, play Friday, and maybe Saturday. We played like RFK Stadium, like 70,000 people. It was Foreigner, I believe Joan Jett, Loverboy, and there might have been some gigs with, uh, uh, who else was it? Iron Maiden, Metallica. It was just this, like, insane tour. And, that was w- waning, and as that was coming down, I was, again, looking for gigs, trying to get some, do the hustle, the, or the sideman hustle. And, I found out through David Brown. In fact, David Brown, Billy's guitarist, was the guitarist on the demos for Cash. So this is, what it really comes down to most of all, Steve, is that this business, as widespread and worldwide as as it is, is this incestuous little thing that we connect to. And if we allow these little pebbles as we throw them in the water to let the ripples connect, David Brown is now, now I'm in a band with David Brown, uh, just doing little gigs. And as it turns out, Doug Stegmeier was in the audience. And he heard. And the next thing I know, Richie Cannata and Billy were, you know, parting ways. They had their, Richie was doing whatever he was doing. And Billy was looking to, to replace him. So I got the call. And that's a long winded story about how I got to it. But that's pretty much encapsulates all the stuff that happens in the hustle. Because you know, by not phoning a gig in, you put yourself in a place that someone might see you. Because uh, that same, that, and, and if I could jump around, the same gig or the same club tracks is how I ended up uh, on Peter Gabriel's uh, Sledgehammer.
0: So mm. that's
1: it's just how it is, Steve. It, it's a it's a very small world.
0: Yeah. Chatting with Mark Rivera here. On speaking of writers, Sideman, in pursuit of the next gig is his new book that is out now. The forward is done by Ringo Starr. You mentioned John Lennon in there. There's a great story. There's so many great stories in this book about how you went up to the Dakota with some other band mm-hmm. members, I guess, when Yoko was yeah. there. Very moving yeah. story as well. That had to be.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, as it turns out, it was um, it was the Yoko Ono Yoko Ono's world peace tour. In 1986, I believe it was. And Jimmy Rip, my very dear friend, guitar player, and a dear friend who has also passed, unfortunately, uh, Phil Ashley, they called me about, hey, man, um, you want to do a gig with Yoko Ono? Um, And again, you're out of work, and he's like, yes. (laughs) The answer is always yes. I could pack my bag in in a toothbrush. (laughs) So that's how I got the call for the gig. We'd rehearsed a couple of times at S.A.R., and then she all, she invited all of us back to the apartment up at the after Dakota, and well, like you know, we're, we're walking into into Oz. I mean, we're going with Yoko ono through the gates, and we go up to the apartment, and I'm looking around. There's the white piano, there's his uh, a a sitar guitar, you know, all this stuff that you've seen. Or the, the, I didn't see the Rickenback at, at that point, but I look out it. I guess it's called a picture window, like a little box window yes. facing. Facing out onto strawberry fields, and I see a pair of glasses, and I get a little closer, and it, it's John's glasses, still bloodstained.
0: Mm.
1: And I, I, you talk about, uh, I think the word I used was a sense of impermanence, because you, th- he was a hero. I mean, John, John changed, for my taste, the entire generation and generations to come, our lives, our culture, our spirit. And when he was killed, you, you you have this sense of immortality of these giants. Uh, not unlike when we just lost Jeff Beck. He was one of my biggest And But to see John's glasses, and I, I don't know if it was myself, what Jimmy said, how can you keep those? And she said, that's all I have left of him. And mm. I'm like, wow. wow. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's mm. just amazing. And th- that kind of reflection... It's what we do when, uh, I mean, uh, on February 9th, 1964, the whole world flipped upside down. Uh, basically, I think the week before, they had sold maybe 5,000 guitars in all of the United States, and the next week there were hundreds of thousands of orders, and there was a, 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 a group in every garage or in every uh, basement where, like, we used to practice in Brooklyn. And it, it's it's just mind-boggling to think of how how it changed in that one instance. Uh, we did a a, a wonderful uh, fest for Beatles fans yesterday, and Mark Lewisson is one of the uh, foremost Beatle writers. Said something very very profound. He said, "When that happened, the time that it happened, it was this perfect storm, because not only were the what we prepared to sh- to hear the Beatles." But there wasn't the internet where you had a thousand choices of what else to do, and you weren't looking at your phone for entertainment. You were hoping something was going to happen on a Sunday night, and that's exactly what happened. We were glued. That was the most galvanizing performance I've ever seen. And I, th- I, I challenge anyone to say, well, well, what about this or that? You know, I, I hate to say it, when Kennedy was killed, it was it was horrifying, and we were all moved. And that happened in November, I believe. So what was it? Three months later, right? Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah, it was
1: this. It was this time that it was this time. And look, I don't want to get (laughs) deep, but it is. It was a time that humanity needed that more than ever, and that's what it did. It was this perfect opportunity. Uh, It it just, but, but but Mark's words were really really. They, they resonated so deeply because, he's right, we had, with CBS, ABC, and NBC, uh, I don't even know, uh, there might have been Channel 11, PIX, there were like yes. four channels <laughs> to choose from, and the Ed Sullivan show was on. It was like, oh, what else are you going to do? And as it turns out, my dT Iris, my Aunt Iris, bought me the album that afternoon on Sunday, that exact, I mean, I'd already heard, I had already heard, uh, I want to hold your hand, everybody had heard that. But she bought me the record, and I put it down. And by the time I got to the song, It Won't Be Long, Yeah, Yeah. I heard John's voice, and it was over.
0: Meet John's the Beatles. John's
1: voice resonated. And, you know, uh, I was looking at the front of the cover, and then I'd flip over the back, and I thought to myself, Man, I, I want to be like that. I wanted those boots. I wanted the, I wanted wanted. I wanted the camaraderie that those four guys projected on the back cover. And then, fast forward after dinner, Boom. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: the Beatles. It
1: was insane.
0: Yeah. And the album Meet the Beatles.
1: Was that album? Meet the Beatles, exactly. Yeah.
0: Mark, I want to go back to Brooklyn. There is a recurring character okay. in the book, your cousin uh-huh. Vinny. And you actually had oh, a cousin yeah. Vinny. And a lot of oh, things yeah. falling off the truck.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, that's my Uncle Vinny. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, first first of all, again, I hate to say it, but may he rest in peace. My my cousin Vinny passed away uh, a few years ago, but he and I were in, in the first band together. And we had our dreams together, and it was his gig that he... Uh, he, he talked the band leader into using me on bass for a uh, a very, I would say lame, but it was... It was a really crappy gig. Uh, it was a wedding, of like a, not a wedding band, it was a, a Latin band up in the Catskill Mountains, uh, the Raleigh Hotel. I dreaded going up there. I did not want to do it. It was like, once again, I'd already played with Sam and David. It was like, okay, I thought I made it. I was already in the band Eclipse. I thought we were going to get signed. I made it. We didn't make it. So I'm going up up there reluctantly, and... Lo and behold, I had my sax, and I met this gentleman, Bob Livingood. May he rest in peace. This is just—I hate to do this all the time—but through Bob Livingood, who heard me, said, "When the time came to replace the saxophone player in what was then Dog Soldier, that's how I got the call." But my cousin Vinny and I were thick as thieves. Uh, he was his grandmother and my grandmother came from Italy together, and my uncle Vinny, who is the uh, my, he was my godfather. He was the superintendent of the Red Hook Projects back in the day when Red Hook was not the upscale place where people were buying million-dollar one-bedroom apartments. It was it was a hellhole. And in fact, I knew Red Hook because back in the day, uh, in, my, in my elementary school days, like 1962, 3, 4, uh, well, actually 1, 2, and 3, there were uh, black friends of mine were being bussed in from red hook and i had all these all these kids that i knew I, they'd come to my house for lunch and that's how i knew that's how i knew about red hook and then i go with my uncle to the project once in a while but things fell off the back of the truck yes uh, <laughs> the stereo equipment uh, my first Bucher saxophone was uh, a no, buffet a buffet krandon saxophone which is probably worth about Back then, three four hundred dollars. I think my father paid fifty bucks for it. And, you know, I came from a lower lower middle class, and uh, that's what he was able to afford. But yeah, my cousin Vinny. I had I had a cousin Vinny, Yes.
0: <laughs> you mentioned playing up with the Catskills. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, I'm sitting in Asheville, North Carolina right now. Dirty Dancing was filmed at a lake. Por- portions of it here in the uh-huh. Asheville area. Wow! But that was the thing—the Catskills with the Jewish comedians. Yeah. 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 Well, they called they called the Jewish Alps. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: all the the Shacky Greens. The, yeah. uh What's his name? Uh, yeah, all, all of them. They, they were. That's what they did. Yeah. They did their shtick up there, and uh, the band. Oh God, I think it's called Midtown Express. It just came to me. I don't know why. Midtown Express would play between certain acts, like a comedian would do his thing. Then Midtown Express would play a thirty minute set, then there'd be a dance band and then another then another like uh maybe the same or a different comedian would do like the later show. And then we do the late, late show. And then after that I would go jam with some some uh not jazz band, but like, you know, an R and B funk band and it was it was a lot of fun. And again, that's it it keeps coming back around, Steve, to just you know, um Show up and be prepared. If you sh- First of all, having, having the, the, the nerve or the tenacity to show up and put yourself in a position where you're a little bit uncomfortable, but you're trying to do a little bit more, I think it's a great it's, – it's exhilarating.
0: So from the, what, Raleigh Hotel in the Catskills, Mark, fast mm-hmm. forward all these years, now you're doing a little thing called the Madison Square Dinner Theater with Billy Joel, yes, right?
1: Referred we'll refer to it as, <laughs> <laughs> you got that one, Steve, I like it. Yes, the Madison Square Dinner Theater, because it's our ninth year, and thanks to Brian Ruggles, who's our house salmon, who is the greatest ears in the industry, we've got that room dialed in so well, and the band, the band performs... So incredibly well, uh, yeah. We're doing the Madison Square Dinner Theater. It's <laughs> it's incredible. And and you know, as a kid, I remember seeing Hendrix at the at the uh, at the Garden, and all you could think about is wow. someday you know, because you, we played these Battle of the Bands tons of times, and I think I don't know if you read the part yet, but uh, Jimmy Iovine from Interscope Records. Oh
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. Timmy and I were in rival bands in Brooklyn. We played at the Battle of the Bands at St. Catharines or Battle of the Bands at uh, what was it? Bishop Ford High School. And we won the right to open up for Mountain one time. And then we played and opened up for the Spencer Davis Group one time. But that was post Stevie Winwood because he is one of my real idols. So, But again, that's what you did. You played, you played, and you played.
0: What's been the feedback from your wife Sandra and your sons on this book?
1: Um, My wife Sandra read through it. She was very impressed. uh, How? How? um, I mean, my wife. Everyone is waiting for her book because they want to call it the Bride of the Side Man to see what her take is (laughs) on the whole thing. But she was she was the most stable. She, as I pointed out in the in the, uh, the acknowledgement, she's the rock of my family. She's uh, I, 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 when I was in a band with Mick Jagger and, and Jeff Beck for like seventy hours. I came home from the second audition that I passed, and I said, "Sweetheart, I'm in a band with Mick Jagger and Jeff Beck. I'm going to go buy some new. Uh, I need new leather pants." And she said, "If that's what you think." She was this like calm like like water, yeah. just reflecting what was around, so she she saw and she saw i mean look, she lived through like you know I hate to say it through drugs and and depression and uh absence that's the main thing, and our two sons I just had a wonderful discussion with our our older son today about my look i'm vulnerable i'm very i'm hurt that I couldn't be there as much as I would like to have been there, but this book and conversations in particular with our sons are the most incredible thing that came out of it because we reflect on what that time was. I'll never get a second back and all the stupid t-shirts and all the things I brought back from Japan and all the stupid toys and all this and that mean nothing. The most important thing that I think the book reminds me is, and this, this is in every facet of life, Steve, I believe that the most important thing we have to give our family and loved ones is our presence in the moment, this present moment and being present that you're not, you know, looking over this shoulder or thinking about, well, what I need to do this tomorrow, tomorrow, uh, you know, the Bible says, or every different every good book says, you know, this, this moment is all you have. Forget the past. Yesterday's the history. Tomorrow's a mystery. Basically mm-hmm. just be present. And, um, both of our sons are—they're very strong young men. Um, uh, I don't like to use the word proud of them because they did all the work. I'm so thrilled of who they are and who they turned out to be. So, I mean, their recollections of it sometimes. One, uh, are. our oldest son today said it was hard to read some of the stuff. In fact, he he was brought to tears. Yeah. And uh, I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, but that's the truth. And it brought me to tears today, just talking to him and to think about it. But that's. Kind of, uh, you know, uh, Ken Dashell from Q104 said in the in his uh, in his introduction or the uh, the, the uh, his acknowledgement or endorsement, I guess, it said, you know, balancing the two sides of the, the professional and personal. He said it's the you'll see the other side of the side man because everybody knows me as a guy jumping around stage with Billy Joel or Ringo or Fonda or whoever it was that they've known me to have been performing with, but the guy, the same guy comes home. I mean, one of my favorite lines of all time is the, we played when we did the, um, we did the um, last played Shea and the last night, the last thing that happened was Paul McCartney shows up and plays. Uh, I saw her standing there and Let It Be. So, so my friends from Brooklyn, the next day, hey, Mark, you play with Paul McCartney. Oh, man, you, you know, you have, how was that? I said, well, I got home that night, and the next morning, Sandra said, go up to the garbage and get a gallon of milk. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the real bar- That's a barometer. The real reality is, yeah, I played with Paul McCartney last night, but you know what? Today, uh, and, and, and back in the day when the kids were young, uh, it was like I played uh, wherever I played, wherever it was, I Come home from a, a, a weekend with or played 80,000 people, and then I was their soccer coach or their basketball yeah. coach. And I couldn't have been more pleased to have been at least that part because so many other parts have been, I won't say robbed, but been taken away that you just don't get back.
0: Mark Rivera. Out on the road with Billy Joel, of course, and the residency at the Madison Square Dinner Theater at Madison Square Garden in New York <laughs> continues. Um, thank you for joining me.
1: Steve, it was a pleasure. I hope I, I hope I didn't go on too long, but when you ask a question like that, it's almost like, be prepared. You might <laughs> uh I I am, at this point, literally an open book and I'm very pleased that I could do that.
0: Yeah, great stories in this book. Sideman, uh, In Pursuit of the Next Gig is the book. It's on Ben Bella Books, available everywhere. Mark Rivera is the author of The Forward by Ringo Starr. Thank you for joining me. And this is Speaking of Writers.